I also have to confess that whenever I say the word inquisition, I am immediately transported to a scene from Mel Brooks's History of the World where there is a song about the Inquisition that, depending on your sense of humor, is either hilarious or mm-hmm. completely inappropriate. I've only ever seen it in meme form. Is that the nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition? That is Monty Python. Oh, wow. Welcome to Jewish History Unpacked, where we do exactly what it sounds like. Unpack awesome stories in Jewish history. I'm Yael Steiner, and my childhood dream was to stay in school forever. I'm Jonathan Schwab, and I am in school forever. Y'all, we've had a couple of really interesting episodes, and the bar is pretty high. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to raise the bar even higher, because today we're going to talk about two really awesome, empowered, cool Jewish women Mm. in 16th century Italy who had a major impact on the political and economic circumstances of their communities. Two women, you said? Yes, two different women. Dona Gracia Mendes Nasi Mm -hmm. and Dona Benvenida Avarbanel, who, yes, is the niece of the famous biblical commentator, the Avarbanel. Wow, very cool. So what did they do exactly? Well, before I tell you what they did, which is come out on both sides of an economic boycott. I'll give you a little bit of background of where they were from and what was going on in that region of the world at that time. Wow. Okay. So the Ancona affair, as this boycott is referred to, took place in 1555. And that's an amazing title, by the way. The The Ancona Ancona affair. affair. I know it's very saucy. It took place in 1555, also a cool sounding year, in the Italian port city of Ancona, which is on the eastern coast of Italy, southeast of Venice, and on the west coast of the Adriatic Sea, across from Croatia, because I know you're a geography buff. (laughs) Jews lived in Ancona very successfully at that time. And as some of you may recall, 1555 was less than a century after the 1492 expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Mm -hmm. And many of the Jews in Ancona had migrated there due to that expulsion or to the Inquisition, which started a century prior to that in 1390. So these are Jews with Spanish roots who moved over to Italy. Yes. And interestingly enough, Benvenida and Dona Gracia came sort of on different sides of the coin of Jews who migrated out of Spain because of the Inquisition or expulsion. Dona Gracia's family was forcibly converted. We'll call those people who forcibly converted conversos. Mm -hmm. They're also occasionally in history referred to as Muranos. I've recently learned that Muranos is a more derogatory term and converso is the more appropriate way to refer to them as they were called Muranos by their detractors because Murano was a term for swine. Mm. Oh boy. So yes, Dona Gracia came from a family of conversos. They first migrated through Portugal where they converted to Catholicism, but were really living um, as crypto Jews. There were Jews who um, externally had converted, but were still maintaining a lot of their Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. Benvenida's family were Jews who fled Spain and never converted and were never part of the converso or crypto-Jew community and 
we're just going to call them Jews. Mm-hmm. Even though obviously both groups of people are Jews, but for convenience sake uh, in this context. So you said the Inquisition and the expulsion. Yes. Just to remind me, those are two different things? Yes. Is one part of the other? So I think I always thought they were the same thing. Apparently, the Inquisition began in 1390, and I actually didn't realize this. It continued in some parts of Spain until the 19th century. Wow. So that had already been happening, the forcible conversion. That had been happening for quite a while, actually. While the Jews had enjoyed actually quite calm, peaceful coexistence with the Muslim community that they had lived under since the 8th century— there was a lot of conflict between the Jews and the Christian Catholic community. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure when, but definitely prior to 1390, in order for people not to be persecuted, killed, or forced to flee their homes, many Jewish families forcibly converted to Catholicism. So then the Inquisition is making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing? Exactly. In 1390, I believe in the aftermath of a riot of some kind, there came to be a concern or a growing concern that a lot of these conversos were actually still practicing Judaism or associating with the Jewish community and Mm -hmm. connected to their Jewish roots. So while I had always thought that the Inquisition was a persecution of all Jews, what I learned while doing the research here is that it was actually an Inquisition of the conversos in order to Mm -hmm. ensure that they had really completely abandoned Judaism. So the people who never converted... They're not really the targets. They are not the the targets. It's Hmm. really the quote-unquote Christians Mm -hmm. who used to be Jews who are the targets of the Inquisition. Mm. That is interesting because I've always similarly thought, you know, the Inquisition is is this terribly anti-Semitic... You know, oppression of Jews. Yes. Which it is. It is, it sounds like, but not all Jews. I also have to confess that whenever I say the word Inquisition, I am immediately transported to a scene from Mel Brooks's History of the World where there is a song about the Inquisition that, depending on your sense of humor, is either hilarious or mm-hmm. completely inappropriate. I think that's the case with a lot of Mel Brooks's humor. I've only ever seen it in meme form. Is that the Nobody Expects the Spanish Inquisition? That is Monty Python. Oh, wow. But there's this whole song, which I'm not going to sing for you, <laughs> about the Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. The Inquisition, let's begin the Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're gonna teach them wrong from right. We're gonna help them see the light and make an offer that they can't refuse. That the Jews just can't refuse. You said you weren't gonna sing it and then did sing it, which I like. Anyway, that song is going through my head. And when I visited Spain in 2019, I sang that song the entire time we were there. And my friend that I traveled with found it both super annoying and like she was a little sensitive to it because her family is Sparty. And what I think is really interesting traveling with her in Spain is that, you know, for Sfaradim, especially those who are connected to their heritage, this is so much more of a profound topic Mm -hmm. in Jewish history, deeply felt topic than for me as 
an Ashkenazi Jew whose grandparents were Holocaust survivors, Mm -hmm. I think she felt very similarly about our travels in Spain as I felt about travels that I've had in Eastern Europe. And Uh, it made me really actually conscious of the fact that I don't treat longer ago Jewish tragedies the same way I treat more modern Jewish tragedies in terms of the way I process them. Makes a lot of sense, right? Like if your grandparents are Holocaust survivors, you think about the Holocaust so differently. No, for sure. And this goes back to what we talked about with Josephus, where when things really pass into time, we don't actually know what happened or we feel Mm -hmm. a lot more detached. So that was a real wake-up call for me. If I want future generations of Jews to understand the Holocaust and the pogroms and the crusades and the expulsion and all these terrible things that happened to Jews that I need to be more cognizant myself, Mm -hmm. that just because something happened 500 years ago and not 100 years ago, that it is important for me to learn and understand it on a deeper level. Well, if you want to learn more about Jewish history, can I recommend a great podcast to you? Oh my God, please do. (laughs) It's Jewish History Unpacked. I have taken us so far astray right now. Let's get back to what we were supposed to be talking about, which is Dona Gracia and Benvenida. So they come from two different sides of the Inquisition. And does that, I'm really curious, this might be a spoiler for this story, but does that come into play? Do they have very different outlooks on what it means to be part of the Jewish community because of their backgrounds? It totally comes into play. Great. When we get to the point in time when we talk about this boycott of the port in Ancona, they both are economically powerful women. And one thinks we need to use that power to protest the Pope and protest ways in which Jews are being persecuted. And one thinks that if we use that power, we are possibly going to inflict further harm on Mm. other Jews. And I think that often plays out today in how Jews choose to exercise their political and economic power. So it definitely impacts their thought there. Um, Let's go take a few steps back to how we actually get to that point. As I mentioned, in 1492, there is a major expulsion of Jews from Spain upon edict from Ferdinand and Isabella. It's always easy to remember what year that happened. I know. Because something else also happened. It's like, I think that if you like took a poll of American students, maybe most American students don't know about the expulsion. I honestly don't know. But if you Mm. took a poll of like American Jewish students, the only royal couple in history they probably know is Ferdinand and Isabella. Yeah, yeah. So Ferdinand and Isabella of Nina Pinta and Santa Maria fame Mm -hmm. signed this edict uh, expelling Jews from Spain. And at that point, Jews migrated all over not only the Iberian Peninsula, but all over Europe. Many made their way up to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. You may know that there was a large uh, Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam that later not relocated, but also opened a location in New York, which still exists today. And it's called the Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue. Yes, like the Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. So that community of Spanish and Portuguese Jews in Amsterdam really originated after the expulsion. That was Mm -hmm. one of the places where Jews lived more comfortably after the expulsion. So fast forward a couple of years from the expulsion, and Jews are living all over Europe, and they're living in Ancona in Italy in 1555. And they're actually living relatively comfortably. They, over the course of those couple of decades, had 
made lives for themselves that were relatively economically prosperous, not all of them, but certainly some of them. And the reason why this was the case was that Pope Paul III was relatively tolerant of the Jews and didn't really care one way or another that they were in... Relatively tolerant in like 16th century Europe means he wasn't like actively killing them or preventing them from doing anything. Correct, exactly. Like he just wasn't really paying attention to them. Mm -hmm. He didn't mind that there were even crypto Jews, people who were living externally as Christians, but were still maintaining some of their Jewish traditions. Like be completely honest with you, I have no idea what was going on in the rest of Italy or European history at this particular moment. Mm -hmm. So it's completely possible that he was like totally otherwise engaged in other things. And this was very low on his to-do list, Mm -hmm. or it's possible that he just didn't hate Jews as much as some of the other leaders of the church at that time. But he basically left them alone. He probably didn't like Jews, but he didn't hate them as much, I think is like a good way. Correct. And they were kind of keeping to themselves and helping the economy, at least in that part of Italy. But what happened is that Pope Paul III died, but his successor, Pope Paul IV, was uh, not nearly as tolerant or willing to ignore the Jews, Mm. particularly the crypto-Jews in Ancona. He was very concerned about the people who had converted to Christianity but were now backsliding into their Judaism. It's a classic problem to have as a pope. Yes. Even if you were forcibly converted, once you are baptized under the doctrine of the Catholic Church, you are a Catholic. And that means that if you still have your Jewish beliefs or Jewish practices— you are committing an act of heresy. Mm. And generally acts of heresy don't go over super well with popes, mm. is my understanding. Yeah, they're into people following the, the doctrines that, that they believe in. Yes, I mean, most religious leaders are. Yeah, not, right. not pinning it all on popes. Seems pretty fair. He was concerned about that, and he did take a lot of action to persecute crypto-Jews and conversos. In the hopes that they're going to take this persecution and then become good Catholics or just because he didn't like them very much? That's a great question. I don't know what his goal was. Was his goal to persecute them and ultimately have them killed or expelled or was his goal to have them repent and return or turn for the first time to a pure Catholicism? I'm honestly not sure. It's a great question. But what I can tell you is that they persecuted many of these crypto-Jews using a lot of the methods of the Inquisition, which were inflicting torture, asking Mm -hmm. questions about your true beliefs. And it really took a great toll on the Jewish community in Ancona. And ultimately, he ordered 26 crypto-Jews to be burned at the stake. Wow. And... One of the 26 killed himself prior to being burned at the stake, but ultimately 25 were burned at the stake for this sin of heresy. Publicly, like for the entire community to see. Yes. From what I understand, those who en route to being burned at the stake were willing to confess to their sins that they had maintain some semblance of Judaism in their lives, were suffocated prior to being burned at the stake, which I think was considered a minor act of mercy. 
Jeez. Um, okay. But those who did not confess uh, were burned alive. So mm-hmm. really, really terrible, terrible um, incident. And I believe that there are some ritual poems that are read on the Jewish fast day of Tisha B'Av that have been written about this. Mm-hmm. Really an awful, awful tragic situation. Yeah. Wow. And this is where we get to the political moment that Dona Gracia and Benvenida were involved in. So in the wake of this burning at the stake, Dona Gracia, who was a Portuguese Jew who had lived as a converso in Portugal, ultimately made her way to Constantinople, where she was living as a Jew. Um, She had always maintained a tie to her Jewish life. I don't know why, but it feels like Constantinople comes up in almost every episode. Sorry, listeners. (laughs) So she had made her way to Constantinople where she had a considerable amount of economic and political power. I know that there are probably a lot of people asking, how did these women have considerable economic and political power? They inherited their money from their husbands. They were widowed. And that was really the only way that women in that era were able to attain personal wealth and any kind of power. It was bequeathed to them with the money that they inherited from their husbands. And is that because they didn't have sons or their husbands didn't have brothers? Honestly, I can't remember which one or if it was both of them. At least one of them had sons and there was some controversy that she was left the money and not the sons. I think it was Benvenida because I know that later in her life, there was a major controversy over inheritance. Maybe it wasn't totally coincidental. Their husbands had confidence that they could take over these estates and stuff. Okay. They were hugely competent, smart women. And Dona Gracia living in Constantinople was in fact so well-connected that she even had direct lines to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire which we'll come back to a little bit later. Yeah. So in the wake of this burning at the stake, Dona Gracia, who really is a hugely interesting woman, and I wish we had time to get into her whole biography. She had many different names. She was given a Catholic name, which she hated and insisted on being called Gracia, which we believe she chose as a translation of her Hebrew name, Hana, um, mm. from the root, which means grace Mm. in Hebrew. She had a very strong Jewish identity. And even though she had been forced to live as a converso for a time in her life, she never deviated from her commitment to Judaism. Um, Her husband, the one who left her the money, was actually her uncle, which... Okay, sure. (laughs) ...was very, very normal at the time, not casting any judgment... Um, and not only was but this it super, way when you know when the money passed to her, it was still staying in the family. To, correct. Not only was it super normal for everyone, I think, at this time in history, it was particularly common in converso families mm-hmm. because they were concerned about maintaining their ties to their Jewish lineage, right, and their familial heritage. They really kept. You want everything. to marry people with like a cultural similarities? You want other yes. Jews pretending to live as Christians. The Jews living as Jews aren't going to fit, and the Christians living as Christians aren't yes. going to fit. So there's a smaller dating pool. That's generally what happened in converso communities. So yes, she was very close to her family, obviously, very close to her Jewish heritage. 
And she was living in Constantinople and she heard about what had happened in Ancona with these individuals being burned at the stake. And I think that was really the final straw for her. And she used her power. And those are her people, not just other Jews, but those are her people, like fellow conversos, people she really, yeah. Yes, that is a perfect connection for you to make, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's why she's going to take the stance that she took and Benvenida Uh, is going to take the stance that she took. Um, So Dona Gracia uses her considerable power to send messages from Constantinople to Ancona and to Jews all over the Adriatic Sea and other places that were using Ancona as an important port, that they should organize a boycott of the port of Ancona, Mm. which really took, could have taken a toll on the Italian economy. And I think did take a toll for a short time. And what's notable about this is not only that it was a woman, Dona Gracia, who had organized it, but it was really the first time in history that we're aware of that Jews used their economic and political power to try to Mm -hmm. protest policy that was being inflicted upon them by an oppressor. And people listened and participated, I assume. Yes. Like the boycott was effective because people did it. Was it just other Jewish merchants in other places? I can't say with 100% certainty, but I do believe that it was. As I mentioned, Jews had really taken up the mercantile trades in Ancona. Mm -hmm. So they're withholding their business really did take a toll. The boycott Mm -hmm. did not last very long. And the reason why the boycott did not last very long, I think no more than a few months, is that Benvenida ultimately won out. Benvenida, who also had considerable- She was like the other side of this, okay. She was the other side. She was an Italian Jew. She had never been a converso. And she was also someone who had ascended to political and economical power. I believe Mm -hmm. through inheritance and a very controversial inheritance, if I remember correctly, she felt that an economic boycott would do more harm than good in that it would anger the Italians. Mm -hmm. It would further anger the Pope who already really didn't like the Jews living in the Papal States. Pope Paul IV, he was the one who created the ghetto in Rome. Mm -hmm. He tried to impose a code upon the Jews where they could only dress in yellow, which to me, you know, really eerily evokes the yellow star from the Holocaust. So he was not a good guy and he really didn't like the Jews. And Benvenida, never having lived this half-life or Mm -hmm. quasi-secret life that Dona Gracia had lived as a converso, she didn't want anything to further Mm -hmm. anger or annoy the Pope or the Italians. You said this at the beginning, but like this sounds a lot like conflicts that come up now. And there's anti-Semitism and there's anti-Semitism about a particular issue. You know, by focusing on it, are we going to draw the ire of all the anti-Semites? Correct. Is everybody going to hate all the Jews? And like, I I hear really both sides of it, you know, but Bienvenida, right, is the second? Yeah, Benvenida, yes. Look, right now it's just about the conversos, the crypto Jews, but if we start this whole boycott, everyone's going to hate all Jews. Everyone's going to hate all And all the Jews are going to be punished. Yeah, it's definitely something that comes up a lot. It's even outside the context of anti-Semitism in any sort of conflict, do you keep your head down, try not to be noticed, mm-hmm. try not to further poke the bear? 
Mm-hmm. Or do you stand up and fight? I'm not saying that what Benvenida did was at all cowardly. It's just two totally different approaches right. to how to deal with persecution and conflict. I didn't think you were saying it was cowardice. I think it's what's our best path to preservation here, right? Like, do we sometimes just suffer from smaller scale persecutions, but continue to live and build our communities and and try to avoid a larger conflict, right? Or is Gracia Mendez's point of just like, look, there are things that we can't stand. And what's the point of all this power that we have amassed for ourselves if we're not going to do something with it? So I think there are those who feel that the two women could have cooperated. And if they would have cooperated, that maybe there could have been a more successful outcome. Mm -hmm. That to me rings of sort of modern day misogyny of, you know, women don't support each other. (laughs) I've never heard any stories of any conflicts involving men. So it seems to me like... It's only women that get into fights like this. Only when women have power are there issues between them. Correct. Correct. I hope that by now the listeners have gotten my sarcasm. (laughs) Otherwise... You're being sarcastic? Yeah. (laughs) I'm a little slow on the uptake. One thing that I neglected to mention is that it wasn't simply that Dona Gracia thought we should boycott the Port of Ancona because I think that also would have hurt Jews economically. And I don't think she wanted to hurt everyday lay Italians economically either. Her Mm -hmm. proposal was that they move to the nearby port of Pizarro, which apparently was a less desirable port for a few different reasons, one of which was that the water was not as deep. And perhaps that limited what types of ships could enter that port or how many ships. And I just think it's so interesting that something as seemingly benign as the depth of water Mm-hmm. in certain parts of the Adriatic Sea could make a difference yeah. in a political movement um, because there were people who didn't want to support the boycott because they didn't want to use the port at Pizarro. It was less desirable from an economic it's a shallow port, come on. Nobody wants a shallow port. No one wants to do shallow port shipping. Exactly, exactly. You know what kind of additional, I don't know, manpower you need to unload your goods? I do. I'm intimately familiar with how hard it is to load and unload a cargo ship. Um, I'm not, it sounds really hard, (laughs) but Benvenida opposed this, not only because in general was she trying not to poke the bear, but she also felt that there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in Pizarro. Hey, it's not like that port's so much better. Yeah, there had been some major anti-Semitic incidents there. There was a count, but that the count who had a lot of power in Pizarro was not a fan of the Jews and also had done some despicable things, maybe not as viscerally despicable as burning 25 people at the stake. But I think Benvenida did not want to reward him either. When you first said count, I thought you were going to say that there, they were, they literally counted all of the Jews and then did something with that number. But It's totally possible that they, they probably did. did that too. And going back to a question you had before about Benvenida, I was reviewing some notes here, and it does seem that she attained a lot of her economic and political power through sheer force of will. Mm -hmm. And apparently that she did win that inheritance controversy really truly based on her character and her forcefulness. Mm -hmm. 
So we're really talking about someone who must have really been something. So they're on opposite sides of this debate. And we may not know this, but were they directly talking to each other or they're sort of just operating in their own independent spheres? I'm not sure what the communication was between the two of them, if letters were sent or messengers were sent, but they did know each other personally from back in the day, apparently Mm. living in Italy. So it could be one of these, you know, childhood or young adult dislikes that really ended up playing out on a much larger stage. They were rivals all the way back from the school that they probably both were not allowed to attend. Yeah, they were like schoolyard frenemies, maybe. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that Benvenita's family fled, never having converted. Mm -hmm. And Dona Gracia's family fled to Portugal, but ultimately all the Jews living in Portugal were forced to convert. Mm -hmm. So they came from a common place and common experience, but they took basically the two different routes that Jews coming from the Iberian Peninsula could take at that time. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that deviation from the common path led to two totally different takes on what should be done to address the persecution of Jews um, in Ancona, where, you know, Neither one of them was living. Certainly, Dona Gracia wasn't living there. I don't think Benvenida was either. It really seems to me like somebody should make a great Hamilton-style musical about these two women and their rise to power and their differing views of things. Yeah, I think they were both really powerhouses. And I haven't gotten into a lot of detail here about, you know, other ways in which they exerted influence. Dona Gracia had the... Ottoman Sultan send a messenger to Ancona to deliver a message to, I don't know if it was the Pope himself, who probably wasn't in Ancona, but maybe his surrogates, that the Ottoman Empire would potentially take military action if the Jews were not left alone or at least treated slightly better than they had been Mm -hmm. treated, which to me is mind-blowing. That is a a mind-blowing piece of information that this woman, or maybe this woman as representative of a powerful Jewish community in Constantinople, had the wherewithal to get the Ottoman Sultan to threaten military action. Like, how did this all end? So the boycott didn't last? Benvenido won out, the boycott ended, and Jews continued to be treated Pretty shabbily. Yeah, and then Jews were... In Italy. Were persecuted more. Persecuted uh, significantly further. I'm not, probably not giving any of this information in order, but uh, Italian cities continue to be ghettoized. I think the ghetto in Rome was first, but there were subsequent that's, ghettos that's in Venice. That's the ghetto, right? Ghetto is, in a, is an yes, Italian word. Yes, it's an word. Italian word. Uh, yes. It was difficult, certainly, for Jews living in the Papal States for a significant amount of time thereafter. So it ended um, not with a bang, but... With the whimpers of thousands of Jews. Yes. European Jewish history continued to play out for several more centuries with certainly subpar and sometimes really abominable treatment of Jews in many countries. But somehow these two women have, have sort of faded to the background a little bit. Uh, I'm glad we're talking about them, but like, why is it that they're not... Not better known. Not better known, not bigger characters. It's a great question. I'm sure that like many people, both men and women, their heroic 
acts or at least their attempts to change the fates of the Jewish people have faded into history and are only known by those who really seek out the details, which is why I'm really glad that we're talking about it. But it also definitely leads me to wonder how many other women and men, but most, Mm. you know, women. Like up to now, most of our characters that we've talked about in other episodes have been men. And I think that we will likely pivot back to that. (laughs) <laughs> in the next episode. A couple couple more episodes on famous men. Maybe I'll dig into this a little bit and we can get back to some heroic women in Jewish history. Yeah. Something really interesting to think about here is how we use our economic and political power today mm-hmm. to uplift both Jews and non-Jews in the world who are suffering. Mm-hmm. We often talk about not buying this brand or not buying that brand because of a political stance that they take or a spokesman that they have or where they are willing to do business and where they're not willing to do business. Not going to name any names. (laughs) This is something that plays out in our day-to-day lives, probably a lot more than any of the other topics that we talk about. Yeah, I tend to take these things on a case-by-case basis and often feel conflicted, often do not have the fortitude to not buy a product that Mm -hmm. I've come to rely on or really like or think is the highest quality or the cheapest. If you know me, that's Mm -hmm. probably the case. You know, these are are things that come up and I can't say that I would pass any sort of purity test in terms of my actions in that sphere. Maybe it's something to think about a little more closely for me. Thank you for unburdening yourself, y'all. I, I, I think you're <laughs> Guys, doing great. I am sharing with you so much. I don't know. To me, it feels like there is something very Jewish sort of culturally about the idea you're talking about. If one of our leaders or part of our community organizes and says, this is a thing we shouldn't support or this is a thing we should boycott, there's a feeling of obligation or guilt sometimes possibly. Of, we should be following this. We should all be doing what this person or what this group is saying of boycotting or not supporting or supporting things Mm -hmm. that do seem like they're pro-Jewish. Sometimes I wonder, like, does that exist in other cultures or other cultures, you know, or religions or groups, like as Um, organized about saying, let's all no longer buy these shoes? I would imagine that every group has their own issues and their own problems that they feel the need to deal with, whether it's being persecuted or not being celebrated in the way that they should be celebrated. I know that um, I believe there's some sort of controversy now. I can't remember where it is about whether or not public schools will have off on Diwali. And Mm -hmm. I believe that in order to not give a day off on Diwali, certain districts have now decided that they're not going to give a day off on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, because if they do that, then they have to do Diwali as well. and Come on, what are we going to start celebrating everybody's holiday? Exactly. We can't do that. So I'm assuming that in communities where something like that is important, um, that's just one example, that there is political action that's taken and people organize. I would hope. I'm sure that there is. And so I don't think it's uniquely Jewish, but um, it's definitely something that has come up over and over again in our history. Thank you for listening to Jewish History Unpacked, a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you like this show, subscribe on your podcast app of choice and give us five stars and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out Jewish Unpacked for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
And of course, check out our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And most importantly, be in touch with Yael and Schwab. Write to us at JewishHistoryUnpacked at JewishUnpacked.com. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner. Our education lead is Dr. Henry Abramson. Audio was edited by Rob Perra and were produced by me, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening. See you next week.